Heavenly Father, um, just as we acknowledge the strange reality of this season, uh, Lord, I uh, my big request this morning is that you would help our souls to rest in a God who does not change. God, things may be different over the coming weeks and over the coming months and um, realities that we're not used to, things that are constantly changing. And Lord, with all of those things in mind, would you let our souls rest in you? Lord, would you show us your value for us? Even as we come to your word today, I thank you for this passage in Exodus where we actually get we get to see and discover what it means that you care for your people. So, Lord, would you even now by your Holy Spirit be convincing your our hearts of your care for us? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I, there are a series of epic phrases that you hear in certain epic stories. So uh, some examples, epic stories that I grew up with. I grew up with the story of the American Revolution, and there was an epic phrase that was associated with the American Revolution, uh, and it was said by Patrick Henry, and that, that phrase was, give me liberty or give me death. Like it was this epic quote that kind of makes your mind reflect back on the American Revolution and everything that it stood for, right? Uh, there is this epic story, another epic story in our history, the idea that we would put a man on the moon. And, and that man who went on the moon for the first time, what he said, he, he said this epic phrase that is like kind of forever stuck in our minds. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. That was what he said. Uh, and then Braveheart, you know, Braveheart, the epic phrase associated with Braveheart, uh, they can take our land, but they'll never take our, and I, free, I, I don't even have to say it because you know it, it's freedom. It's freedom, right? So so that's Braveheart, Lord of the Rings. So everybody's like, oh, what is what is the epic phrase for Lord of the Rings? The, the epic phrase for Lord of the Rings is Gandalf, when he's getting ready to fall off the bridge uh, and go after the Balrog, he says, fly, you fools. That is, of course, the most epic phrase from Lord of the Rings. And if you've never seen Lord of the Rings, I am so sorry to have left you out for that illustration. But there were some who enjoyed it, so you can take heart in that. Uh, so in Exodus, what is? What is? is the epic phrase in Exodus. It's let my people go. Like over and over and over again, the thing that is repeated, and you probably have this picture of Charlton Heston in your head standing before Ramses, and, and he is saying, let my people go to Ramses. Like this is the picture you get in your head. This is the epic phrase that's associated with this story. And so Exodus 9.1, it says this, says, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. So this is a, this is a crucial phrase because with it, what is happening is that God is actually claiming something as his. God is actually claiming something as his. So, so what does it mean that there is a people that God claims as his? What does it mean that there's a people that God that God would actually call his people? So imagine with me for a second that you have been given a very special gift. 
Uh, it might be uh, something. So there is a gift that my dad gave to me, and I'll kind of explain that gift to you. Uh, it is two quarters. Uh, they're kind of put back to back. And then around those two quarters is this brass ring. He was a fabricator. He worked with metal a lot. And so around those two quarters is this brass ring. On one of the quarters, it's the Illinois State Quarter. So that's one of the sides. And on the other side is uh, the year that the quarter was made, 1990. Uh, that's my birth year. So so both of those things on each side of the quarter. And it was just like this uh, this little like memento that my, got, my, my dad got for me. And um, the purpose of it, it was actually like a, a card weight because when I was in high school, I, I played poker with my friends in high school a lot. And he got me this little card weight. You set it on top of your cards. You kind of leave it there. It was more just like a little memento, right? So maybe you have a special item like this uh, that, that has some level of personal value for you. I want you to imagine with me for a second. Imagine somebody steals this item. It might uh, be sentimental or whatever, but, but somebody comes and they steal this thing from you. How are you going to feel? Like this robbery, this, this thing where they take this thing that has sentimental value to you, it's not just awful because it, it's something that you used to have that you don't have anymore. Like it's not just awful because of the loss, but there's actually a deeper loss in knowing that the person who took it from you does not actually have the same value or purpose for that thing that you had for it. Like not only do they steal this thing from you, but but in their use of it, like they further disrespect you because in their failure to they, they actually fail, fail to recognize the purpose and value of the thing that they stole. So take this card weight, for example, two quarters back to back uh, with a brass ring around it. So that's like just the, the objective value of that. It's like 50 cents and a brass ring. So at the end of the day, if some if they were to get rid of this, this little uh, card weight that my dad made for me at the end of the day, uh, the value would come out to less than $1. Like that that value, that's what they would be able to get out of that. That value doesn't even begin to compete with the value that this like little piece of property would hold for me. And why do I say any of that? Because uh, because if somebody takes something from you that has that kind of value, you value this thing in a really special way and then somebody comes and steals it and they just sell it for something. They they, they don't have the same value for that thing that you have. They've devalued the thing that they stole. And I say all that because this is what Pharaoh has done to God. Pharaoh is holding people who belong to God, who God actually calls his property, his possession. He says, these are, these are my people. These people belong to me, Pharaoh. Uh, I've set them apart as for me. And then he says, so that he said, I've set them apart or uh, let them go that they may serve me. The word serve is the same word that's used earlier in Exodus for the word slave, describing what Pharaoh has done to the people. Like, so Pharaoh has called them slaves. He has made them slaves. He has made them work brutally and hard to build his own country, to build things for his own glory. And, and God, when he's saying, let my people go that they may serve me, that they may be slaves to me and not you any anymore, Pharaoh, that they may uh, work for my glory and not for your glory. And so when, when God comes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go that they may serve me, he's essentially saying this. He's saying, Pharaoh. You have mocked me on two fronts. Number one, you have stolen 
and abused people that I treasure. And number two, you have used them for an empty purpose. You see, Pharaoh, he had used and abused God's people. He had actually treated those people like property. Uh, but what we come to see in this passage is that God highly values his people. So, so we're going to discover exactly what God's value and care and concern for his people looks like in this passage. So, so today, before we do anything else, I just want to let you know I have two big goals for you to walk away with today. I want you to walk away with comfort and peace. Like my heart for you, Alliance Bible Church, this morning as we head into this passage, as we just look at what God's care is for his people, that my heart is that every person listening who can say, I am a part of God's people, that you would find incredible comfort and incredible peace. Like if you are one of God's people this morning, I want you to walk away knowing that your God highly values you. I want you to walk away knowing that your God fights for you. I want you to walk away knowing that you are his and his alone. I want you to walk away this morning knowing that your God is tenacious in his care and his concern for you. Today, we're actually going to watch two more plagues unravel in Egypt. And as these plagues come out, in the midst of these plagues, we are going to see God's heart and God's value for people that he calls his own. In Alliance Bible Church this morning, I want you to know more than anything else, God cares for his own. Okay, so let's look at the fifth plague that God brings to Egypt. Plague five, the livestock. Exodus 9-2. It says, four, if you refuse to let them go, Pharaoh, and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So what God is doing is he's saying, Pharaoh, you are holding my people, but I am not interested in you holding them any longer. So I'm going to attack your livestock. The livestock for the Egyptians, they symbolized strength and power. So there's like the practical side of strength and power where livestock actually provided food, provided transportation, provided milk, provided clothing. There are all of these practical aspects that livestock provided. But then you add to that the symbolic nature of livestock as power. Uh, what's interesting is that a number of the Egyptian gods, this is not just one god that's being implicated in this plague, but there are multiple gods being implicated here uh, because the reference to livestock, uh, a number of the Egyptian gods had uh, bull horns or uh, hooves or, or stuff like that. So so these horns, these bull gods, uh, many of them, they, uh, they represented the, the bull horns the different symbols, they represented power. So whenever the gods bore some of the symbols of livestock on them, they were representative of power. Uh, and so, you know, Pharaoh, when he looked at himself, he's this emissary of the gods. He's this person who represents the gods. In fact, some would look at him as if he were one of the gods. Uh, Pharaoh, he saw himself as this bull who held all people under his power. And God is going to make it clear to him that he does not hold his people under his power. So God's about to show Pharaoh 
that he has more power to free than Pharaoh has to hold them under his control. So verse four says, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. Okay, so remember, livestock is symbolically representative of power. So what is about to happen is that God is about to orchestrate a redistribution of power in the land of Egypt. He's actually going to take his slave people, and they're, they're going to be symbolically exalted over the Egyptians. So uh, not just symbolically exalted, but but actually in terms of, of resident power that exists in the land, the Israelites will be exalted over the Egyptians. So this is kind of like David and Goliath. Like go, if you looked at the picture of David versus the picture of Goliath, Goliath, you would say that Goliath was objectively more powerful than David. But we know that God can so easily shift the power dynamics that exist. And so what happens is that the short kid named David, he actually takes down this behemoth of a man with a rock and a slingshot. Like that's all. And why is he able to do that? Well, because God shifted the power dynamic in the situation. You know what? God's care and concern for his people is about to become so clear that it won't be questionable as to where the power actually lies. God is going to empower the powerless. So verse 6, the next day, the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So the uh, the Nile, the, let's talk about all the plagues that have uh, happened up to this point. The Nile, uh, it was symbolic. It damaged Egypt in, in some significant ways, but, but it really only lasted seven days when the Nile turned to blood. Uh, the other plagues, like the lice, the lice thing, that was a little gross. It was a little weird. The flies and the frogs, they were incredibly inconvenient. They kind of disrupted life for a few days. But let's talk about what's happening with the livestock. Like the livestock, when they die... It's going to take a long time for them to recover from. So, so when Yahweh, he actually he, – he causes this plague to come amongst the livestock. He actually hits Egypt hard for the long term. He's not – and he's symbolically taking their power away, symbolically propping Israel up. But that's not only happening symbolically. It's happening practically because Israel still has livestock and Egypt doesn't. And so, so Pharaoh wants to see – you know, if what God said was true, if it actually happened. And so what does he do? Well, he sends people to go and check. It says Pharaoh sent to see if this was actually true. And he sends people to go and check out how the people over in the land of Goshen are doing, the Israelites. And what happens is that he discovers that God has suddenly now empowered those who were powerless. So think of all of the fear of Pharaoh. Uh, the fear of Pharaoh caused him to say, you know what, we need to impress, oppress these people. We need to enslave these people. We need to rule over them. Otherwise, you know what they're going to do? They're going to leave and they'll join our enemies and they'll overtake us. And so we need to make sure that we oppress these people. But what's happening now is that because of his oppression, his worst fears are actually becoming reality. Like, So his response to his worst fears was to oppress, and now because he was oppressing, his worst fears are becoming a reality. 
So he's now discovering, actually, that all of the power lies in Israel because of who Israel's God is. So you know what's happening? Like when Pharaoh sends, when he discovers this, you know what he sees? He says that Israel has food and Egypt doesn't. Israel has transportation and Egypt doesn't. Israel has milk and Egypt doesn't. Israel has clothing and Egypt doesn't. As he discovers all these things, I think he's starting to get the point now. God cares for his own. So you know what? Pharaoh, he he used to see himself. He was he was used, very used to seeing himself as blessed by the gods, as even one amongst the gods. But but when Yahweh God speaks, when he enacts this plague, he's making it clear, Pharaoh, you're not one of my own. You are blessed by no one. I care for my own. And so now he's going to solidify that statement with the next plague. Exodus 9, 8 through 12. Verse 8 says this, it says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So, so I just want you to know there is incredible poetic symbolism happening in this plague. So, uh, so first of all. Uh, Moses, what he's doing, he's, he's actually copying. Like when the Lord tells him to do this, he's actually copying an Egyptian healing ritual. So, so what the Egyptians would do is that they would make sacrifices to their healing gods. Uh, and these would, be, these would be animal sacrifices much earlier on in Egypt's time. They would actually make human sacrifices to these gods. And, and they would take the ashes of these sacrifices, and what they would do is they would throw them up in the air, and then the wind would blow the ashes onto people who had various diseases, and the ashes were supposed to uh, bring healing to the people. They were supposed to bring the blessing of the gods to the people. And so specifically, uh, the main gods that would be implicated here are the god uh, the god Imhotep, who is the god of medicine. And you'd often see uh, an image of Imhotep on uh, graves in Egypt. And the other god is Sekhmet, who is the goddess over war and disease. And, and these, these gods would be sought after. There would be sacrifices made to these gods. The ashes would be thrown up, and then uh, the wind would blow it. And that's how the Egyptians believed that they received healing from these gods. And so, so now Moses, he goes, and he's going to do this with soot from the kiln. So uh, what is made in the kiln? Bricks are made in the kiln. Who makes bricks in the land of Egypt? The Israelites make bricks in the land of Egypt. So when Moses, when he goes to the kiln, when he walks up to the kiln and he takes the soot, the ashes from this kiln, these are the ashes of Israel's oppression. Like all the work that they have been doing in Egypt is summed up in these ashes that, that Moses picks up from this kiln. And when he throws it up in the air, God miraculously multiplies it and enables it to, to go over the whole land of Egypt. And these, uh, these ashes of Israel's oppression, the sacrifice of God's people for Pharaoh's glory is actually going to become a tool that oppresses Egypt. So there's a concept, uh, an idea that I want us to pick up here, and it is this. God wastes no experience for his people. 
God wastes no experience for his people. So you know what? When you become a Christian, God takes all the life experience that is summed up in you at that point and makes it all into a tool that he's going to use to glorify himself. So uh, so maybe you have past emotional struggles as a Christian. God uses that emotional struggle to give you greater empathy and understanding for other people. Well, when you be, uh, maybe you have uh, some consequences that you face for personal sin. You know what happens is that uh, God uses those consequences to give you the ability to warn others about the dangers of walking into sin. You know, uh, maybe you have a past where you feel like you really messed things up or you blew it in some way. Uh, you know, God's going to use that experience to uh, to give you a deeper appreciation for his grace. Maybe you have this uh, time where you're discovering wickedness in your own heart. God is going to use that to provide a process that others can apply to discover wickedness. Like as you discover wickedness, you describe this process to others. He's going to help you be able to describe that process and maybe others can take it and apply it as well. Uh, Maybe you have sickness or health problems. Maybe that's something that you are experiencing. You know what? God is not beyond taking that and using it to form you and shape you into the kind of person that he wants you to be. He's not beyond using that experience to give you a deeper well of compassion for people. You know what? So so if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've seen God use pain and struggle and difficulty from your past for good. So this is what he does. This is how God works. He takes two things. Uh, He takes the consequences of our own sin and he takes the results of living in a fallen, sinful world. He takes uh, he takes all of these things together, and he's so good that he can take even that evil, even that evil, and he can turn around for your good and for his glory. He can take those things and he can turn them around for your good and for his glory. Now, does that mean we should step headlong into these things? That Does that mean we should pursue evil? Absolutely not. Like That's not at all what I'm saying, but I'm saying God is so merciful that he would even take the struggle that we have created for ourselves and turn it around and use it for our good and for his glory. And he does something like that with Israel here. Like what uh, was evil done to them? Like did Pharaoh Pharaoh's evil come against them? Like Pharaoh intended to do evil? Absolutely. But what does God do with it? Well, he turns it around. He turns it around for their good and for his glory. He actually makes Pharaoh's evil. He uses the results of Pharaoh's evil to to use it as an act of judgment against Egypt and use it as another means by which he was going to prop Israel up over Egypt. Okay, verse 10. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Then I want you to see what happens in verse 11. The magicians, they could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. So these magicians, uh, just try saying Egyptian magicians like 10 times fast. I challenge you all, just just go for it. See what happens. Uh, These magicians, they represent the evidence of the Egyptian God's power. 
So, so when the, uh, these magicians, they come out and they, uh, do all of their magic tricks and that kind of stuff, they were for Egypt, uh, the representative of the power of the Egyptian gods. And, and this is actually the last time that we see these Egyptians. This is the last picture that we get of them. And, and we get to see this story, uh, that God gives us this picture so that we can see with clarity what exactly is going on with the power dynamics in Egypt. Because Yahweh is the God of Israel. And so you know what? God's own people are being lifted up just as Moses is standing before these magicians. They can stand while all of Egypt is being brought to its knees. God is changing and shifting the power dynamics in a massive way. And at the end of the day, Yahweh's emissary is standing while the emissaries of the Egyptian gods are on the ground. And God is clearly in this moment setting his people apart and making sure that everybody gets the point. God cares for his own. Okay. So what? Um, Number one, God has claimed a people as his own. God has claimed a people as his own. You know what? There exists a group of people who belong to God. They are his. And this is because, you know what? God values those who belong to him. So God was in the process of liberating these slaves who cried out to him. God went to extreme lengths in order to get them out of Egypt. We see these 10 plagues. We see the burning bush. We see all of the miracles that take place in Egypt. We're going to see in a little bit the Red Sea and the process that he goes through there. And so so God, he, he when he claims these people as, he, as his own, he goes to extreme lengths to show his value to them. And you know what? When sin, when the world, when Pharaoh, when he claims property ownership of people, it always results in oppression. But when God claims ownership of people, it designates great value. And so just look at the way that the, the value is just demonstrated in the plague here. Like, is Pharaoh being cared for by God in this situation? Well, no. Are the Egyptians being cared for by God? No. But are God's people being cared for by God? Are the Hebrews, are the Israelites being cared for by God? Yes, absolutely. So God's action of love towards the Hebrews In Egypt, they prescribed great value towards these Israelites. And you know what? Nothing has changed about this reality. Like God still greatly values his people. He still cares for his own today. So so you know what? Israel was God's people. He was creating a story in Israel that would include them as his people all the way through. And you know what? Today, we are a part of the same story, and we are ascribed the same value uh, so that if we can say, if we can truly say we are his people, then we have some things that describe us. So I just want you to consider these New Testament verses in which God's God's value for his people is evident. John 15, 5 says this. It says, I am the vine and you are the branches. John 10, 14 says this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. How about 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10? We read it in one of our scripture readings this morning. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And you know what, what else is amazing? Like we also see God's care for us and the great lengths that he went to to call us his own. Romans 8, 31 and 32, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So you might say to me, Alex, how, how do I know that God really cares for me? I would ask you the question, are you one of his own? Because if you're one of his own, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have turned your life over to Jesus, then God absolutely cares for you. So what number two this morning? God is working all things for ultimate good. So you've heard this passage before. I'm going to read it to you. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So what does it mean that God cares for you? What does it look like? It means that God finds a way to take every piece of your life and give it eternal value. Like God finds a way to work every piece of our life into his plan. And that plan results in our ultimate good and his glory. But be careful because you might walk away from this sermon thinking God wants to give me everything I've ever wanted. Like when it when it says God, you know, he works all things together for good. You might walk away thinking God wants to give me everything I've ever wanted. He's never going to let anything go wrong in my life. Everything's always going to be good. And that's not the point of this passage. That's not even the point of this sermon. The point is that God cares for you. So what did that look like for Israel? Well, he saved them from Egypt. Eventually, he made them an incredibly prosperous nation. He gave them wealth and riches. He gave them great power and influence. But I want you to hear me on this. When he gave them all of those things, it all had a purpose to it because he was building a nation from which his Messiah would come. We live today in a world where now that Messiah has come. And so God's care for his people looks a little bit different than it did then. So now physical prosperity is actually not the main way that we observe God's care for us. Although we can see it in physical prosperity, we actually see it most clearly in the spiritual prosperity that's offered to us. Ephesians 1, 12 and 14 tell us about this. Sorry, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what is the biggest way that you know that you are valued by God? How do you know that you are up on his shelf? How do you know that you are that special prized possession of it, of his? It's because the spirit of God in us is God's declaration of our value. So what does the spirit do? How does the Spirit actually show us God's value for us? Well, the Spirit enlightens us. He opens our eyes to what is true and what is false. He helps us understand Scripture. The Holy Spirit sanctifies us. He takes us from our brokenness and starts making us whole. 
The Holy Spirit comforts us. Actually, comforter is one of his main jobs. He draws near to us. He uh, uh, draws near to our hearts. He he lets us know in times of anxiety, in times of stress, he gives us a peace that passes all understanding. The Spirit convicts us. We actually learn to love this conviction because it's proof that we belong to God. God cares about us enough to let us know when we are straying away from his path. The Spirit directs and leads us. He guides us where to go, and he prompts us how to get there. The Spirit empowers us, meaning he actually puts God's energy into our efforts for his glory and brings about fruit from those things. So don't miss the importance of this because you might be inclined to feel like the underdog. You might be inclined to feel undervalued, but this morning God cares for his own. And this is how that's demonstrated to you most clearly. It's in this, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is given to you for your good and his glory. That's how God's value for us is most clearly demonstrated. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is given to us for our good and his glory. He empowers us actively. This is the power that enabled the early church martyrs to to stand in front of crowds of accusers with faithfulness to Jesus. This is why the gospel explodes when the church is persecuted. This is how God is actually able to draw good out of painful experiences. This is what God does today to set his people apart. So the only question that remains this morning is this. Are you one of his own? Because he is in this process of distinguishing his people from all others. And when he does this, this is a distinction that lasts into eternity. Matthew 25, 32 says this. says, before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep, the sheep from the goats. This this parable points to us of, of God's separation of his people and his protection of his people and his good plans and purposes for those who call who he calls his people. And so for those of us who follow Jesus, we actually get the joy of knowing that the value that God places on us into eternity. And so maybe you're feeling powerless this morning. Maybe you're feeling like you have nowhere to belong. I'd invite you. If you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus and and you're feeling in that place this morning, I'd invite you to just remember you are his child. He values you deeply and he is working for your ultimate good. But if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, If you can't say that you are one of his people, then I invite you, please hear his voice today. Join God's people. Be called a part of God's own and start following Jesus. If you want to do that this morning, it's actually um, there. We have provided a means for you to be able to do that, to let us know that you want to give your life to Jesus. And so so there is actually a, a button below this video that says, I'd like to accept Christ. You can click on that video, and if if you fill out the form, sorry, you can click on that button, and if you fill out the form that's there, you can let us know, and somebody will reach out to you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to celebrate with you and welcome you into being a part of God's people.
Because as you listen to his voice, as you hear him, you know what? As you even start to follow Jesus, God will show you his power to free you, his power to protect you, his power to save you. And then, you know what? God will show you just how much he cares for his own. So Alliance Bible Church, the thing that I want you to walk away with this morning is God's deep care and concern for you as a part of his people. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I um, I pray if there's anybody listening who is just wondering, am I really a part of God's people? Or, or maybe somebody who wants deeply to know the value that you place on them. Somebody who's tired of being used by the world. Lord, I pray that you would draw that person to Jesus. Lord, I pray that, um, that in Jesus they would see the depth of, of your value for them. And then I pray for the hearts of all of us who are following Jesus. God, very easy, it, it, very, it's very easy for us to get our eyes on the world. So many times we can look around us and we can miss exactly what you're up to, exactly what you're doing. And so, Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts towards Jesus to, to observe exactly how much value you have for us. That you would not spare your own son for our sakes, but that, but that, Lord, you would show us the value in allowing him to be slain on a cross, that we might be forgiven, that we, be, that we might be called clean and pure and holy and blameless. This is an amazing gift. That we might have the promised Holy Spirit who is to us an empowerer and a comforter and a healer and a sanctifier, and Lord, all of these things. And so, Lord, you value us deeply. Would you allow us to walk away being grounded in the value that you have for us? And Lord, may we be so grateful to be able to walk in this kind of relationship with a God who gives us such uh, vast mercy and grace. So we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.